This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the webbox podcast i'm matt Sholley, coming to you live from the british virgin islands where it's perfectly capable to do your actual job for four thousand miles away apparently uh, coming up on today's episode we're looking at GPs rather than MPs. There's lots to talk about MPs, which I'm sure we'll do in just a moment on uh, talking to uh, Finkelvich. But our big thing today is GPs. Should they be jabbed? Should they be banned from working in posh areas? What's it really like on the front line? We've got some uh, audio diaries from GPs on the front line. We'll also speak to the Health Minister, Maria Caulfield. Uh, so that's coming up. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkstein and David Obodovich. Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Every time I hear that, I hear something else new in it. Anyway, uh, it seems to be getting longer and longer. Right, uh, yes, that time of the week where we speak to Finkelfitch. It's Daniel Finkelstein is in the studio. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in live from the British Virgin Islands is David Ivanovich. Morning, David. Hello. (laughs) Nice to have you both with us. Uh, Now, uh, let's talk about what... I mean, I've referred to this so many times now, the Finkelstein theory, that none of this stuff matters until it does... Has we reached that Finkelstein moment yet, Danny? I don't know. And uh, one of the things about it is that you don't really know until you've tipped over the edge. Uh, It's certainly possible, but it's usually been my view that it's when it hits the Prime Minister personally that it'll tip over the edge. Uh, And this certainly has the capacity for doing that because it could lead into... Uh, a further investigation on the wallpaper front. He'll just be in a, a bit more of a uh, difficulty in escaping from that. I definitely think this is the sort of event at which he's at its weakest. It's certainly possible that this will begin the time for a change feeling that I've always felt was um, the government's biggest political enemy. Uh, and um, But whether it's the tipping moment itself, I would say that I, I, I would say that I don't think so but it remains possible. What about you, David? Where do you stand on the on the Finkelstein moment? 
the Finkelstein fulcrum. Should we call it that? Perfect. Um, we'll get, we'll get a jingle mail. From, yeah, exactly. <laughs> from now on, it's the Finkelstein fulcrum. Have we kind of have we kind of reached? Well, it would be a fool um, to view the Finkelstein fulcrum when Finkelstein himself has just told you that he doesn't know whether we're at it or not, I say. I say. Well, well, just because so, he came up to it doesn't mean he's, he's the right arbiter of it. Exactly. Well, no, no, but it's safe. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is a bit safer to assume that he is, really, than to assume that he isn't uh, for the point of view of his recriminations later on when you kind of go hell for leather down it. And then he says, well, I did tell you to be a bit more careful right there back, you know, when we, when we talked about it. Um, what I do note is this. Um, I'm not a great fan of uh, doing things like tweeting out polls or or even kind of collections of polls and so on, because obviously they change and because we know we're near an election. But I do know that a couple of weeks ago, do you remember this, uh, both of you, that uh, some of the more kind of excitable uh, Tory commentators were beginning to say, well, maybe he's going to go for an early election and so on. Um, and I've been looking at the, poll, just at, the, at, the, at the last month's polls and thinking, no, you'd be absolutely mad to go for an election now. And that does kind of suggest something of uh, a change. And I know you've been mounting, uh, Matt, your kind of one-man satirical campaign about uh, the leader of the opposition. Um, uh, probably not even one man, probably several people are, are doing it as well. Um, uh, and despite the fact that Keir Starmer clearly is not kind of particularly himself uh, connecting with vast ways of the British people. Nevertheless, there is that kind of dissipation of the Tory overall lead and that kind of big growth of criticism and dislike for the government, which you associate with difficult times for, um, for that government. Um, and I don't, you know, there's, there's, there's quite a funny tweet from uh, a, lay, a former Labour MEP saying that Boris, Boris Johnson escaped talking to the Commons by going and making a nuisance of himself in a hospital. And you look at some of the pictures from the hospital, and you think, yeah, that's exactly what he is. He could really <laughs> do, have done without this kind of, you know, sort of kind of oaf-like figure braying down the corridors without his mask on when they're trying to get on with dealing with the patients and, uh, and so on. It's and, funny. It's funny, David, you know, the, the, the polls actually had the, almost the exact opposite effect on me. So it's always been my uh, assumption that the Conservative Party would face a very strong time for a change uh, feeling during this parliament and that a lot of what happens at the next general election will depend on its timing in terms of the economy. I never thought it was remotely sensible uh, or indeed credible or possible plausible that the Conservative Party would call an election. Now I think it'll do it much later, probably, you know, the fairly much in the last in the last sort of six or seven months that it's able to do. But what struck me weirdly is the polls are so weak for Labour, considering that many of them were taken literally on the day that there's a massive story of scandal um, relating to a group of sort of arrogant uh, and corrupt uh, Conservative MPs, and on when when you when you take a poll, even on the day of a leader's speech, for example, in a party conference, you get an immense effect of that day's news just because it's whatever people happen to have watched in the last twenty minutes before they did the uh, poll. Uh, and I felt that for those polls to be taken and for them still to show, you know, one percent Labour lead, no percent uh, lead, was actually pretty weak. So they had the opposite effect on me. I began to think, well, maybe these structural effects, the demographic effect of Labour and the Tories, with the Tories the beneficiary of these, are stronger than I'd estimated. 
Uh, yeah, let me let me just say, I would not at all say that the polls are strong for Labour in any kind of historical sense, although I don't trust historical senses anymore when it comes to <laughs> politics. I don't think we live by old rules very much anymore. Uh, I note, but what I do note is that the non-Tory vote is growing. Now, of course, in the first past the post system, that can split in such a way that it does, is no advantage to the opposition whatsoever. And we've, I've always thought that in the end is going to be the very big problem for people who don't want to see Conservative governments perpetuated uh, throughout their entire lifetimes into their senescence. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it's there. It's the, it, it feels like, I mean, that can... It, that, it, it is ending up in a position whereby it seems much more likely than not that the next election, when it's held, will be a hung parliament of one kind or another than it has felt during this last six months discussion of how the Tories have really? won the Red Wall. I felt all the time that it was likely to be a hung parliament. I've now begun to think maybe I was wrong. Um, so it had the, the opposite effect on, on it on me. You know, I just think it only requires a 4% swing to have a hung parliament. In those circumstances, the Tories will be out of power. I've always thought that that was vastly underestimated. The probability of that was vastly underestimated by most commentary, which assumes the Conservatives will win the next general election. Uh, but I did look at these polls and thought, well, it's pretty interesting that even at a moment of tremendous weakness, on the day of big weaknesses, it didn't move more. But, um, you know, so so maybe, maybe I'm not right. But nevertheless, um, you know, the, the overall, we're, we're not, we're sharing a difference of opinion about when this happens, but but not what's happening. The, the, well, it's the last time I agree with you, Danny, I have to say, <laughs> because as soon as I agree with you, it turns out that you've stopped agreeing with yourself. <laughs> But on the on the subject of the part, there's a very good piece by Chris Curtis from Opinion uh, in Red Box today, and he's saying that actually the the the, the shift in the polls has been happening for a while, and actually the more um, uh, striking thing is it, it actually the vaccine bounce is has essentially came to the end in May, and that drift has been happening. So actually, the fact that Sleaze doesn't appear to be having a, a direct sort of dramatic impact on the polls, but the polls are still shifting is. M- almost more worrying for the Conservatives because the sleeve story will go away, no. but the drift might not. Well, that's possible. Look, you know, I do, as I say, I do think time for change is important. We just, we are missing an immensely important variable, which is how will the economy do uh, in the six months to a year before general election? And that will be so important to the outcome of the next general election. And we simply don't know. It is very possible the government's got the political economic cycle wrong. So they're actually achieving, uh, they've achieved in the last six months to a year, uh, stronger growth than they'll get in the six months to a year of an election. And you do that, get that wrong. And you don't uh, you don't prosper in an election well let's move on because um, as ever we had four things to get through and we've already used up almost all of our time on the first one um <laughs> straightforward question for you david would you take money from the mosley family um uh, if i would take money from the mosley family if i didn't have to attach their name to the thing that i was <laughs> taking the money for um so, uh, so in other words, you wouldn't um, call it the oswald mosley conservatory on the back well, of the house. I certainly wouldn't, yeah the oswald mosley memorial jewish library no i think uh, probably not um uh, uh, the, the thing the thing to think about is this partially firstly i would like their money to be attached to good things and i suppose there's always a possibility that their money would go to i don't know fund a new fascist party or something like that so i'd rather that money didn't go there um on the other hand i don't really want the oswald mosley m- memorialization and so on so i think i would be happy to take their money and have a little thing in my publicity down towards the end that says and thanks to to a donation from the alexander mosley 
the memorial fund and leave it at that. And I think probably that's consistent with all the other people that we take money from one way or another. Um, uh, this is... A, 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 when you consider that we still have major Sackler wings of of major museums and galleries in this country, I think the Mosley thing is really small beer. Yeah. So is it basically, to explain this story, four uh, British noble laureates of Corfu Oxford University consider uh, to reconsider endowing a professorship in the name of the grandson of Oswald Mosley. So it's actually uh, Max Mosley, who was obviously Oswald Mosley's son, created the Alexander Mosley Charitable Trust in remembrance of his son who died of a drug overdose in 2009. So it's not actually as straightforward as a sort of the Oswald Mosley uh, professorship. No. It's, but it does amuse me. We're having all these debates about let's let's take down the road statue, let's not call these buildings after Woodrow Wilson or David Hume, or and then you think, well, what what or um, you know Gladstone? What what should we choose instead? Oh, Mosley. <laughs> it, is, it is darkly amusing, isn't it? Um, and so um, you know, no, I. I it's a question of whether you take the money. That's a different question. It's a complicated one because, uh, you know, if, if Max Mosley were less complicated a character himself uh, with less involvement in his father's politics, uh, I think mm. it would be easier. Um, but um, because some of this money is Max Mosley's and some of it's Oswald Mosley's. Um, but, I, you know, if I was a university, I wouldn't be entirely comfortable about taking money from the Mosley family, no. Very good, very good. Um, do you want to talk about we could do the Royal Court or sewage? <laughs> well, I, I, I just wanted to say that the Royal Court story, which is a story about them uh, having a naming a billionaire character uh, who's sort of in charge of uh, kind of exploiting everybody and uh, and power and money, Herschel Fink, obviously has made me wonder about the kind of... Uh, the, the, the resonance that my own name has. Most of the time you go through life with your own name and you don't think what other people think of it. I mean, it's all, at school someone says Frankenstein, obviously you notice that, but the, the, you don't think about what is actually the sort of unconscious bias people have about it. And uh, it did actually have quite an impact on me, thinking that that was what they associated with that name. Uh, it's a bit disconcerting. It just makes me realise that, of course, instead of calling it Finkelstein's Fulcrum, we could call it Finkelstein's Monster. Um, <laughs> it was kind of the, the kind of paradigm. Oh, yeah, I that's better. We, could, just, get, we could, could get some music on that and some special effects. We really just could, actually. There's a whole kind of... Yeah, it's called the whole paradigm. That's so everybody can kind of uh, can look out for it. I feel kind of slightly strange about this one, apart from the fact that, obviously, this character should have been called Max Mosley. Um, <laughs> and, then, and that would have solved everybody's problem, could have given some money to the production uh, and so on. I did kind of wonder... A, 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 a lot of people I know, in fact, all the best people I know, have got very cross about this and so on, so I really don't want to be any less cross than them in case I kind of miss out on the kind of, you know, good people being cross. Uh, competition. <laughs> um, um, but I did kind of wonder whether it was really true that the author actually did know that Herschel was a Jewish name as opposed to an American name, an American kind of name. And actually, with all due respect to a lot of people, Fink is not an absolutely inevitable a Jewish name. No, you're right, David. Almost, Almost nobody ever knows that I'm Jewish. That's a good point. Um... <laughs> Finkelstein, Finkelstein is a different, oh, is a different, ma is a different matter. So when you knew that there was a movie called Barton Fink, 
Did you automatically think that that character was Jewish? I mean, I have to admit I didn't, despite the fact that the film was made by the Coen brothers um, uh, uh, and so on. Did, did, did you automatically Well, they, honestly, that? the PR department of the Royal Court, they obviously uh, did a failure of recruitment last time when they didn't come to you. Um, that, that, honestly, they called him Herschel Fink, David, right? I mean, what, what did they think he was, French? Right, I mean, it's, it's obvious what they <laughs> what they meant to convey and what associations they um, they had uh, with that name. And by the way, which I think would appeal to you, the the real problem is the play itself, which is a play about uh, some capitalist stealing lithium from Bolivia, is a ridiculous conspiracy theory to start off with. And it's totally fascinating to me that ridiculous conspiracy theories about capitalist exploitation are linked uh, in people in their minds, uh, of the minds of people who do it, uh, in an unconscious way with Jews. Uh, and um, it's both uh, the ridiculous uh, conspiracy theory about capitalism, much of which you have to sit through in the theatre or the cinema from massive capitalist co corporations making, uh, making ridiculous films and plays about other exploitative people. Um, and then, <laughs> but it's also about Jews. And, I, you know, okay, yes, I can see I, your I point. Him. No, I give in. I give in. Uh, you convinced me. Oh, honestly, I was I, I, I was never that robust in this argument. <laughs> no, I did understand. The first I think that's I think that's, uh, that's probably two. I think we'll score that two one to Danny today. Uh, <laughs> I think I think it's very near a three nil. <laughs> Then, of course, you can read them both in the Times of your week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesweatbox. Up next, we're on the front line with GPs. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Webbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The government is locked in a row with GPs. Health Secretary Sajid Javid has, has demanded the return of face-to-face -face appointments, blaming GPs for the continued strain on A&E services as family doctors fail to meet patients. GPs, on the other hand, say their unmanageable workloads are causing many people to leave the job. Uh, there's also calls for new doctors to move to poorer parts of the country and demands that they all get vaccinated too as a requirement of their job. So what we wanted to do today is try to get a better understanding of what life is like for GPs in an average surgery. So we've been following two GPs, Dr David Lloyd, a GP in North London, and Dr Neil Sangani, who's a GP in Leicestershire, 
find out what it's really like, a day in the life of a GP. And here's what happened. Good morning uh, from the Ridgeway Surgery in North London. I'm a GP working in a 16,000 patient practice. Looking across the system, we've got 11 GPs working today. So we're quite well staffed today. We have 136 available appointments for GPs today. 68 online slots. Uh, we have 32 slots booked out so that 111 can put in patients who need to be seen. 20 slots for uh, two of our nurses who visit patients at home. So 318 free slots for the start of Friday morning. Looking at my own personal list today, I have 11 patients booked in already to see face-to-face uh, and I've got 10 booked telephone calls so far. I'm just heading into work on a cold, crispy autumnal morning. Um, a little bit earlier than usual as we have our weekly clinical meeting of doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists. Um, and this morning we are discussing our care home patients, a really vulnerable group. So that's going to be an, an interesting meeting. Before I actually start seeing the patients this morning, I'm assigned the online consultations. So I've got about 25 so far this morning. Uh, and these are our sort of email type consultations that have come in. But it, they're really a lot better than an email because they have artificial intelligence behind them. So if a patient puts a symptom in like breathlessness, it will ask them a series of further questions. So what it means is I've got a really good summary of the positives and negatives and answers to subsequent questions about their symptom. And I can make a really good guess at, at the sort of nature of the problem that they've got. So it's 9.30. I've seen my first three patients face to face. I've done four telephone calls. Uh, things are picking up. We're 69 fewer slots than we were at eight o'clock, but we've still got uh, 84 free slots for GPs today. So unfortunately, that was quite a common consultation that I'm seeing at the moment. Uh, somebody with some sort of musculoskeletal pain, in this case it was knee pain, uh, been on the waiting list to see one of the orthopaedic specialists for a long time now. And that waiting time has got even longer because of the pandemic. This is a, a tricky situation for us now. We have lots of patients on waiting lists who really need surgery or something more than I can offer as a GP. And we're trying to tide them over as best we can. Things are starting to fall apart now. I've had a patient walk out on me who had been waiting for 45 minutes because I had a difficult patient. Uh, I've now got one visit and one emergency, uh, and I've still got another 12 calls to make before I start my afternoon surgery at four. An exciting day to come. Report back later. One of our doctors has just rung in with a fever and so won't be able to complete her afternoon session. Um, this is a, a fairly common occurrence in, in general practice at the moment with someone or other with a fever and either needing to isolate or having to go home because they're unwell. I work for the clinical commissioning group and one of the things we're focusing on at the moment is the winter plan for primary care, uh, making sure there's enough capacity, which is really challenging at the moment given some of the workforce issues that we have. Um, with, pay, with staff still having to take time off for isolation because of COVID, all the usual winter viruses around, so our staff coming down with those too. We're a large teaching and training practice. Uh, I've just been to see um, a, a, quite a tricky case actually with one of my GP trainees in the practice to support him in, in making a diagnosis um, and trying to squeeze those in between the cases that I'm seeing myself. I'm really so lucky to work with such an excellent team. Our nurses and healthcare assistants are always willing to go above and beyond to squeeze another patient in um, where necessary uh, to get them sorted. 
well after last the last message and, and the panic over the middle of the day things seem to have quietened down now as they always do on a friday afternoon i've just done a small emergency operation and i'm now moving to our other surgery to see another three patients uh, and see how we're doing in the covid hub so it's nearly a quarter past seven and just to say that we think that this was a pretty good day i've seen 39 patients today and uh in general, the practice has done pretty well as well. We've done 339 appointments today. We've even got seven free slots at the end of the day for general practitioners. So that's almost unheard of. So an abnormal day. Uh, but I guess I hope you've got some idea of, uh, of the sort of things we get up to in general practice. So there we are. That was uh, Dr David Lloyd, GP in North London, and Dr Neil Sangani, a GP in Leicestershire. And they both join me now. Uh, morning. Morning. Um, uh, so, David, you mentioned uh, uh, there that it was uh, not a slightly abnormal day in that it, you had some slots left. Um, how does that compare? What does a, a, a more normal day look like? How how busy is it in uh, your your practice? So, yes, it was a very unusual day in that it was the day after Diwali. So a lot of our patients uh, celebrate that particular holiday. And so it was a bit like, you know, Christmas. Uh, so we had a quiet day because of that. Um and yes, normally things start to panic around lunchtime, messages go out uh, where slots are closing, we're adding extra slots to doctors and nurses and physicians associates all through the day. Uh, and then sometimes we have to say enough's enough and we divert to 111, which is just like the worst thing to do in the world because 111 is so, so, so busy at the moment that actually adding to that queue as well really does make, make things much more complicated. So yes, I'm afraid... You got a very good day from us, I'm afraid. I wish I could have given you a bad day. Um, and what? how does a bad day compare to your experience sort of two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? What's the, what's the world of being a GP like uh, compared to previously in your career? Golly. Uh, different in every single way, really. I think the, the, change, to face, the change from face-to-face to to video calls, to email consultations, to uh, lots of different ways of communicating has, has made an enormous difference to, to patients and ours. If we, if we ask patients what they want, only 30% of them now want a face-to-face consultation. They would prefer a telephone call or email. So all this stuff about, you know, we're not providing enough face-to-face, it's actually patients themselves quite often who are going to say, no, I don't want a face-to-face. So that's been an enormous change the constant worry about COVID, uh, the constant pressure to get people vaccinated because obviously GPs are, are, are responsible for getting that done. Uh, and then the way that we actually work, the way that GPs now work is to, to maintain some sort of sanity. Our GPs will work to very um, rigid rules when it comes to the number of patients, the number of contacts they have. Uh, and so it's up to the partners to, to mop up the mess that's after, after they've all left. So, yes, there's enormous changes. I can't tell you in less than a day or two how things have changed. <laughs> um, uh, Dr Neil, um, what, what, how do you feel as a, as a GP when patients are asking for phone calls instead of face-to-face uh, contact? Maybe because it's easier or, I don't know, you know it's more convenient or... Um, maybe they're more embarrassed and actually it's a bit easier to have this phone conversation. How difficult is, is it for you as the doctor being confident that you've, you've got the full picture and you've made the right diagnosis? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's that balance. So um, although it's sort of lauded that it's GPs who want um, to do telephone consulting, we did that at the start of the pandemic to absolutely keep, keep patients safe, to reduce the number of patients in waiting rooms, to stop them having to come into the surgery um, to, to help with the pandemic. But actually, we all recognise that there's a whole series of conditions and problems that we can deal with really quickly and efficiently over the telephone. And that's great for patients. And it actually improves access for some patients who may struggle with transport or may um, really struggle to get time out of work. Um, but you're quite right. There's a whole series of conditions where we're, we're actually far less confident doing that over the telephone and we need to examine people. Um, and sometimes we have the opposite problem where we're trying to encourage them to come down to the surgery because we want to examine them, we want to do some tests or whatever it might be. Uh, and they're reluctant to do so because they don't want to take time out of work or, or they've got busy family lives and, and it's difficult for them. So it, I think it works in both directions. Um, I think we've all come on enormously and realised the potential of telephone consulting and online consulting uh, and realised how helpful that can be. But it is about striking that balance and getting it right. And a, a lot of surgeries now, I think, are, are doing a very much patient-led approach. So if the patient wants the face-to-face appointment, absolutely will book them for that and if they prefer a telephone consultation but there needs to be some give and take if, if the doctor cannot make the diagnosis or is struggling to, to to get a management plan that's going to work for the patient without seeing them um, then patients need to be flexible and, and come down but equally if patients really want that personal touch need, need the compassion the caring the interaction of a face-to-face then we're, we're there to give it to them. Uh, just um, before I let you both go I've got to ask you both how long have you been a GP for and if you were leaving medical school now, would you become a GP now? I'll start with uh, you, David. Um, so I've been a GP for 42 years. I retired on March the 31st last year, but came back an hour later to cope with our COVID <laughs> epidemic. Um, I still think it's a wonderful profession. I still think it is uh, an absolutely wonderful career destination for any young doctor. Uh, and I think given my personality and the way that I work, I would still be a GP or an A&E consultant, one or the other. Uh, And what about you, Neil? I've only been half the number of years that David's done, I'm afraid, but uh, um, but I, I still love it as well. I mean, it's really challenging. It's it's quite draining um, at the end of the day when you've had multiple contacts. And I think what's really important to sort of um, say outwardly is that what patients see, what the media sees is those reception contacts, is those interactions with the clinician. But they don't see a lot of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, the huge backlog of long term conditions management, the enormous amount of paperwork we have to do. We're running a business. We're trying to look after our staff. We're trying to keep ourselves up to date. We're trying to make sure that we're compliant with the regulatory authorities there's so much going on underneath the surface that isn't seen out there publicly um, and it's trying to get through the day but do all of that as well to make sure you've got an efficient effective high quality organization providing the best care that you can for your patients and i think also it's understanding that primary care has its backlogs too we often talk about the waiting list in the hospital sector. We have our backlog of work that we're trying to get through as a consequence of the pandemic. But I still love it. I'm still really enthusiastic about it. And I'm really grateful that most of our patients are so considerate and so uh, understanding of the challenges that we face on a day to day basis. Well, it's really good to speak to you both. And thank you for sharing your 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 days. And I, mean, I suppose if you'd had a busy day, you probably wouldn't have had time to record uh, clips for us. Uh, it's really good to speak to you. That's Dr. David Lloyd, a GP in North London, and Dr. Neil Sangany, a GP in Leicestershire. Let's bring in Michael Mulholland, who's the vice chair of the Royal College of GPs. Uh, speaks for uh, all GPs more generally. Um, Michael, uh, how what's the overall picture in terms of the the uh, pressures that GPs are under, uh, do they want to stay in the, uh, in the sector? Are they leaving? How are you attracting new GPs uh, into the profession? Yeah, I think Neil and David have very accurately reflected what a day in general practice can be like. The pressures 
the constant demand, the workload um, in the face of a decreasing workforce that isn't actually meeting the population size and the increase in population. So it's a really hard place to work at the moment. And at the same time as um, seeing our normal workload of patients with chronic and acute illnesses, GPs have also been involved in the vaccine programs. And currently, obviously, we do what we normally do at this time of year, which is the flu program of vaccination as well so it's a really pressured place to work and we know our winter is going to be even busier still but as for whether it's a good place to work yes it is um, we have young gps coming in trainees as neil referred to um, wanting to be gps and what we want to do is show them the great career that this can be however we know that in our most recent sur survey as a college um, we're seeing an increasing number of gps saying that workload and burnout is affecting them um, with lots possibly able to retire or get into a time where they won't be able to work anymore in this for their own mental health or to meet um, satisfaction in their career anymore because the demand is so high. And uh, the Times reporting this week uh, that the, the government's looking at restricting where GPs can and can't work to try and plug shortfalls in certain parts of the country. I just wondered what the, the Royal College of GPs uh, take on, on that was. I think this is something that we... Um, don't quite see how it would work, how you would train in one part of the country and then be told, no, you can't. Because what we know is um, the workforce in an area is often from those places where people have trained, where they have worked, and then they go into practices nearby. Um, and I think that applies to every part of the country. And what we maybe need to do is increase the number of trainees coming through so that they can train in areas that don't have the same ratio of GP to patient as they do in other parts. But we know nationally that there's an increase in that ratio all the time because we just don't have enough GPs to meet the demand and the rise in population size. Sweetie Goods, thank you for that. That's Michael Mulholland, the Vice Chair of the Royal College of GPs. Up next, we're going to hear from uh, the Health Minister, Maria Caulfield, to get her take on uh, that idea of uh, telling GPs where they can and can't go to work. This is Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Times Radio Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Asma is back after a few days away. Yes, we've missed her. We'll be looking together ahead at what the Thursday's deadline for all care staff being fully vaccinated will mean for the sector. We'll be speaking about that and the rest of the day's stories with Emily Carver from the Institute of Economic Affairs and lovely Times Radio presenter Alexis Comran. And Great British Bake Off's Martha Collinson tells us how stopping food going to waste is a recipe for success. Switch on to a brighter breakfast every Every morning, Times Radio Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard. Empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Morning, morning. Nice to have you with us. And our big thing today, we are taking a look at GPs and what's really going on. In your doctor's surgeries, we've already heard from two GPs. They gave us a day in the life of an average surgery. And we heard from Michael Mulholland, the vice chair of the Royal College of GPs. Right now, let's hear from the health minister, Minister for Primary Care, Maria Caulfield, uh, who is also a nurse. I caught up with her earlier and started by asking what she thought the pressures were that GPs currently face. It's a really busy time for for GPs. I've been out visiting my GPs in my own constituency, but also uh, talking to GPs more widely and talking to MPs 
cross party uh, from around the country and uh, they describe it like a tsunami so people didn't go and see their gps during covid for a variety of, of reasons uh you know nervous to, to go to gp practices obviously there's infection control measures and so uh, that, that it was difficult sometimes to get a, a physical appointment at gps um during the, the pandemic and but since then uh, there's a wave of people who um, needed to be seen sooner, but are just coming forward now. They're also experiencing a huge um, amount of patients who are waiting for hospital treatments and, and contact the GPs um, to, to see what's happening and to try and find out information. So there's a range of um, different issues that, that GPs are finding, but their workload is absolutely huge at the moment. And whose fault's that? I don't think it's a, a fault. I think, you know, we're in the we're still in the midst of a pandemic. And so there are more reasons to call um, your GP uh, that, than there were, say, pre-pandemic. Um, you know, patients have, uh, you know, not been able to get elective care a, a lot of the time during the last 18 months. And that's reopening now. And so they're coming forward if they've had, say, a, a hip problem that they, you know, need to see uh, an orthopedic surgeon for. They put that off during the pandemic. Some people had symptoms and thought, you know, they're not too serious. I'll wait till things calm down. Uh, and we're heading into the winter period as well. So naturally, it's always a busier time with respiratory illnesses, coughs and colds um, that people go and see their GPs for. So I think it's almost like a perfect storm. And how do you go about fixing this problem? Because obviously training up a, a new GP takes many years and uh so to, to to get new gps into the system right now just isn't possible is it well there's two things we're doing obviously we are training uh more gps and we've had um uh you know really good numbers coming forward for for gp training um uh in the last uh year which is really encouraging but as you say they take a they take a while to train um but uh, the two things I would say is firstly, the GP uh, winter support package is there to really help um, practices um, try to open up their um, their options for patients. So, yes, for more face to face appointments, but also um, to try and tackle some of the issues of, of patients trying to get through to receptionists uh, where they have maybe one or two receptionists offering them that cloud based telephony system will really make a big difference. Um, enabling them to ac access that funding um, to open up other healthcare professionals who work in primary care at those GP practices. So, you know, being able to, to um, take on more hours from a pharmacist, a physio, a nurse, a paramedic uh, means that more patients can be seen. It doesn't always have to be the GP that a patient sees. Uh, you know, I say this as a nurse, you know, if you've got um, high blood pressure, you're probably better off seeing the, the, the practice nurse who can do your blood pressure readings for you and, uh, and give you advice or the pharmacist or the paramedic. Uh, and, you know, we have to kind of view general practice a bit like a hospital. You know, there's a range of healthcare professionals there that can see you. And so if our only focus is on how many GPs we've got, we really do miss the expertise and the skills of other healthcare professionals who can provide really good quality um, services. Are you concerned about the number of uh, appointments still happening uh, not face-to-face? -face? I mean, there's lots of anecdotal um, uh, evidence that people aren't getting, you know, everything diagnosed in the way they should have done. It's very difficult over the phone unless it's very straightforward. Um, you know, healthcare is complicated and sometimes it's only if you, when you sit in front of a, uh, a medical professional, they can pick up actually what the issue is. is. Are you concerned that still too many appointments are happening not face-to-face? -face? Well, I think it's about 
choice. So I've heard from lots of patients, that actually, they do enjoy the, the telephone or virtual consultation, you know, speak to some particularly younger patients who uh, maybe have sometimes simpler requests around prescriptions or um, just, you know, advice um, on um, issues that can be done over the phone. You know, if they're busy trying to juggle family life, trying to get to work, the telephone appointment system really works for them. But for those who do need face-to-face -face and want face-to-face, -face, we have seen an increase. So during the pandemic, I think face-to-face uh, -face appointments with GPs were down to 43%, you know, uh, understandably so. Um, they're now, you know, close to 60%. So we are definitely seeing a, 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 an increase in numbers. I wanted to ask you about this report uh, published by the Social Market Foundation that I think was... Uh, written by a former uh, uh, secretary of the Medical Practices Committee, a guy called John Goodham, uh, looking at the idea of reinstating sort of central control over where uh, GPs can and can't go, the idea of barring GPs from taking new jobs in affluent areas to force them to work into the, in the sort of deprived towns where uh, they really need them. And actually the figures are really striking, aren't they, in terms of the, the, the number of uh, uh, people per GP uh, the you know in some of the best areas it's what 1,600 1,700 patients per GP in, in other poor areas it's sort of 2,000 uh, going on for 3,000 people or almost uh, double the amount is this something that you're you're looking at to try and get new GPs into the areas that really need them yeah, so the, the, the government has been doing this for, for a while now. We've got the Targeted Enhanced Recruitment Scheme, which is a scheme that offers GP trainees um, £20,000 uh, to train in an area where there are less doctors, so an un, under-doctored area, as they're called. Um, and what we've found is that if trainees, where trainees go to train, they'll often stay. Um, and so uh, incentivising them to go to areas where there are less doctors um, and doing their training there means that once they are um, trained, they, they're likely to stay there. And we've seen, you know, numbers have gone up and we had, um, you know, 500 in, in the in the last year take up that offer. So I'd rather incentivise uh, GPs to, to go to areas where um, there's a shortage rather than uh, the mandate them to do so. Just finally, uh, Maria Crawford, you, you mentioned that you, you were a nurse and actually you went back uh, working on the front line. Uh, of nursing during the the coronavirus, the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic last year, there's been lots of talk over the last few days about second jobs of MPs and that sort of thing. Uh, presumably, you would draw a very distinct difference between what you were doing on the front line in the NHS and you know somebody who was lobbying or consulting and that sort of thing. Would, would you like to still be able to do? I know you're, you you've said you've got two jobs now. You're an MP and a minister, uh, but would you still like to keep that uh, ability to go and work on the front line in the NHS to 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 really know what's going on there while while also still being an MP. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, certainly for me, just seeing what ha what's happening on the front line, um, you know, I did a night shift on Saturday night, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, seeing what's happening on the front line, it just gives you a different perspective that you can't learn from briefings or meetings um, or certainly not in the in the Westminster bubble. And, you know, people have talked for years about they don't want professional politicians. They want people with real life experience coming into Westminster uh, and making decisions. And I think for me, um, being able to, to, you know, my experience of working on the COVID wards during the pandemic, you know, will stay with me forever. Um, and certainly I'd be, a, I think, a poorer minister if I hadn't done that. And what was it like Saturday night shift uh, in, in the NHS at the weekend? Yeah, it was busy. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, there was, a, there was, you know, it was a, a busy uh, shift and, you know, with poorly patients. But actually, um, you know, the, the staff were working really well. Um, we had we had some empty beds uh, and we had, um, 
you know we had all the kind of resources we needed so it was just interesting to to kind of um you know to to keep that I, I would really like to keep doing that because I you know for me I enjoy being 12 hours out of not being an MP and and no one being able to get a hold of you and actually people really pleased to see you they're yeah novel experiences for for an MP um but actually the the valuable practice of, of just you know speaking to staff in particular and just hearing how things are going and experiencing it myself um you know uh, it, it's very valuable to me but you know i understand that people have concerns of, uh, about the roles that mps take uh, that was maria corfield the health minister uh, speaking to me about uh, what it's like for gps right now but also uh, her work uh, in the nhs that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.